In today's episode, we discuss the Roman general Sulla, the ancient Greeks, the importance of character, passion, the modern world, and much more. Really hope you'll enjoy today's episode. Thanks for tuning in. Today's show is brought to you by IcePod, finally an affordable, portable, and effective way to get the benefits of cold water immersion in the comfort of your own home. I opted for the Pro Bundle, which includes the IcePod, a water circulating pump, a special insulated lid, and a thermometer to check the temp of your water. Even in Georgia, the IcePod keeps my water between 60 and 70 degrees, and when I load it up with the 36-pack of water bottles that I use and refreeze after each session, I can easily get it around 50 degrees for the perfect cold water immersion experience. Despite being light and portable, the IcePod is super durable, and it's the perfect solution for anyone who wants to experience the benefits of cold water immersion without spending thousands of dollars for a home water chiller or trying to DIY your own. Cold immersion can help with recovery and muscle soreness, raise dopamine levels, help you wake up and be more alert, help you to burn more calories, mobilize brown fat, and more. Visit podcompany.com and use my special promo code SHANE50107 for $10 off your order, and each sale helps to support the show as well. Stay cool out there, people. Are you looking for the perfect high-protein snack that isn't loaded with stuff like MSG, nitrates, and sugar? Carnivore Snacks is the perfect high-protein snack made from quality grass-fed beef and salt. That's it. Each bag uses one pound of high-quality beef, lamb, pork, or chicken, salt, and nothing else. Aside from being easy, healthy, and convenient, they also taste great. These snacks are not just another jerky. They are way better. Give a bag a try, and I know you'll keep coming back. Check out Carnivore Snacks, spelled with an X, dot com, and enter coupon code SHANE05137 for 15% off your order, and each sale will help support the Renaissance Wisdom Podcast as well. Welcome to the Renaissance Wisdom Podcast, where ancient and modern wisdom come together to create a better way of living. I'm your host, Shane Sorensen, and each week we speak with successful people from a plethora of disciplines in search of wisdom from their own lives. Your own personal renaissance begins today. Let wisdom be your guide. Hey everybody, welcome to the Renaissance Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Sorensen. I'm here with today's guest, Alex Petkus. Welcome to the show. Good to be here, Shane. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. I'm I'm excited to uh, you know, have the intro or introduce you to the listeners a little bit. So why don't you start out just by telling us about you and uh your background a little bit? Yeah, I'm a former academic. I left academia around twenty twenty. I was in a tenure track job and I got out of there for, uh, I, basically I felt like, um, so I was a classicist. I studied ancient Greek and, and the Romans and the Greeks, both the history and the literature. And um, I, I got into it really thinking that the ancient texts and ancient philosophies can and should have an impact on our lives. And uh, I just decided that in academia, that maybe that wasn't the best way to, to present it to people. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was one of my motivations for leaving. And now I am, uh, I left to kind of pursue entrepreneurship and 
so that's going pretty well and now i'm i'm working on a, a couple of projects maybe we can talk about um as the show goes on but my background is basically ancient greek nerd turned entrepreneur trying to figure it out as i go awesome that, that's a that's a great background because i think um you know probably a lot of the listeners and also myself uh i guess i kind of have like the opposite <laughs> the, the opposite experience where you're like you're doing life and then you kind of realize like I don't know. It seems like there's something lacking a little bit. And then you, you get into philosophy, uh, searching for answers. So, I mean, I guess quick side question. I mean, do you, do you feel like being introduced to philosophy as a career sort of changes your view of it? Or do you think that, uh, I guess it can, right? I, I think you are muted at the, okay. there we go. Okay. Yeah, so uh, I see this a lot these days. I think that the time and history that we're in might be part of it, or it just maybe it's a, a phase of life where uh, people, when they get a little further into their careers or get around the time where they're getting married, having kids, they start to ask deeper questions or want more of a structure. And um, I think coming at it when when I did, it, um, academia really kind of, warps your perspective on what philosophy is potentially mm -hmm. and it can be a kind of intellectual exercise uh, which I, it a, there was a little bit of that in antiquity but for the most part philosophy in the ancient world and the renaissance world for most of history has been a practical discipline for people yeah. that weren't professional philosophers and were looking for wisdom and guidance on how to live their lives and how to how to like become who they were supposed to be and fulfill their potential and so I think that to the extent that philosophy can get back to that essential promise and that essential like attention to real life, um, then it's more likely to have an impact. And I, that's that's that was another frustration I had and another reason I I left academia. Not that you can't do that in academia because there are good people doing that, but it's a lot. There's a lot working against you. You're swimming upstream. Sure. Yeah. And. As far as like, um, you know, what, what you're working on now, like tell, tell me a little bit about, um, you know, what, what you're doing now and what you're working on currently. So, uh, I have a day job where I'm doing some marketing and finance, but most, uh, I, I split my time between that. And then, uh, my, my project that I'm entrepreneurial project I'm trying to build is, uh, the cost of glory, which is mainly mm -hmm. a podcast right now. I've been working on it for about two years. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it is, uh, my project is basically, uh, the, the content I put out is all about connecting with the lives of great ancient leaders through biography, through long form biography, long form for audio. Um, my, my biographies that I do are way shorter than most biographies that you would buy um, or, or listen to on, say, Audible. But I am, um, I'm I'm taking my inspiration from an, an ancient philosopher <clears throat> who happened to write the greatest biography collection in antiquity, maybe ever in history. It's the, certainly the most influential, and that was Plutarch, who is uh, the author of the Parallel Lives, and he wrote this this collection of maybe fifty surviving biographies of great ancient leaders. All of them were statesmen and 
Um, many of them were generals, most of them were generals and politicians. So they were men of action. Plutarch himself was, um, was a sort of minor local politician, but he was also a, like a very serious writer and philosopher. And he was interested in, in, in collecting these biographies that are pretty bite-sized compared to what we're used to with these doorstop, you know, phone books, thousand page yeah. exhaustive biographies now. They're, they're more like 50, 60 pages and uh, 30 at the lower limit. And just trying to collect as much insight and wisdom as you can from looking at the career of a great leader. And also um, finding Plutarch has this great eye for dramatic scenes and like key moments of history. And so I try to bring that into my podcast as well. Um, and around that, I'm, I'm building a business slowly for... Um, leadership training, education, and uh, the art of public speaking, which is kind of the, the primary career skill in antiquity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, um, I, I saw a lot of that in my study, you know, when I, when I was writing my book for like the Renaissance as well, that the, the people that inspired the Renaissance, like the men that the Renaissance humanists looked up to were a lot of the same men that you're probably referencing to, like, you know, your, your Cicero, your Quintilian, um, they, they looked up to Seneca a lot. I think Plutarch was read during the period as well, but th there's something about a time period where a bunch of people collectively start looking back at people who inspired them from the generations before. And there, there seems to be a lot of really powerful lessons, especially as you were speaking about like some of the practicality of public speaking, when you're, when you go back and you read Quintilian or you read Cicero, uh, their, their teachings are very powerful um, in those respects. So like when you're profiling, when you're doing these, uh, you know, mini biographies, so to speak, or bite-sized biographies, what is it that you personally think is so powerful about those? And, and why do you feel like, this kind of uh, compelling inner drive to share them with other people? What do you think people can take out of history and out of these biographies? Well, one of the things that I've sensed is that we're living in times of chaos and tumult, at least that's the vibe. A lot of people have this feeling. Um, yeah. and, and Plutarch has been an author and like the lives of great, leaders of the past have been a subject that people have turned to often in those kinds of times. So the Renaissance, like you mentioned, uh, Plutarch was translated kind of early into, into Italian and, and Latin in the Renaissance. And uh, he was a very popular author for you know, the biography of Cicero, the biography of Julius Caesar, Brutus, the guy who murdered him, his friend who murdered him, uh, Alexander the Great. Uh, great leaders of Athens. And, and um, in the Renaissance in particular, you know, they're looking at these um, ancient figures and seeing a lot of similar political configurations where you've got warring city-states in ancient Greece and you've got warring city-states in Renaissance Italy. Uh, and so, uh, but, but also the, um, the U.S. founding fathers, another kind of time of mm -hmm. chaos and tumult <clears throat> and potential, infinite potential um, Plutarch was one of the top five most popular 
books in the American colonies. It was like if you had a bookshelf with 10 books on it, chances are a collection of Plutarch's biographies was going to be on there. And the founding fathers were very interested in many of the figures. The life of Cato the Younger was extremely popular. He's a stoic figure from around the time of Julius Caesar. Really, Julius Caesar's great nemesis in politics was Cato. And, um, and he was trying to keep the Republic from falling apart and falling into a monarchy or a tyranny, as he would have called it. So I think that, you know, when, when we're looking for, you know, when we're facing times of chaos, uh, probably especially as men, but anybody, you, you, you are really, you feel this pressure to be your best self and to, uh, f to figure out what it's going to take to be that person and what kind of, um, I don't know, to, to make good decisions when there's a lot of uncertainty. Yeah. And I think that's one of, the, one of the reasons that people turn to biographies in these kinds of times. Um, and uh, there are just countless lessons for how to face risk and uncertainty and how to you know, bring out your full character, build your career in, in these biographies. And, um, and, and they're just inspiring. And there's, there's this emotion that the Greeks were really interested in that we don't have a great word for. They, they called it zeal or zelos, which is where we get the word zeal. But it doesn't mean what we say when we say zeal. It's, um, is the emotion that you feel when you see something great in somebody else and you want to achieve it. Mm. I've heard Rob Henderson call it good envy or like positive envy. So it's, you might call it emulation. That's not a very, that's not a word that we use a lot these days, emulation, but it's, it's the feeling of wanting to be of like a, like a positive kind of jealousy, you might call it. But, um, but they thought it of as a, as a, as a good emotion and, and quite distinct from envy. And that was, that was the driver of, um, of greatness in the, in the eyes of a Greek, a Greek philosopher like Plutarch. He talks about zeal all the time when he's writing his biographies. And that's the purpose. Like if, if there's, there's concrete lessons you can learn, but there's also this, this like energy that you can get, this drive mm -hmm. that you can get from just hearing stories of people doing amazing things that kind of powers you through your day, through your year. So that's, that's what inspires me to keep going and, and share these stories with people. Um, and you know, see what comes of it. Yeah, that's really well said. And I, I like that you emphasize kind of the, you know, two different areas, which is uh, obviously like the practical lessons that we can take because so much of wisdom comes through experience. But when you pick up a biography, you can learn from the experiences of someone else. So uh, when you get to learn about how somebody that, you know, almost lost an empire, for example, deals with failure, you can take powerful lessons out that allow you to deal with your own failures, even though they might be a little bit smaller, you know, in some ways. And yeah, it really puts things in perspective. I mean, these guys are getting exiled. They're losing right. children. I mean, it's just so much suffering. And uh, I've definitely benefited a lot personally myself from, from the encouragement of that. And, and on the zeal in too, um, which I, I've never heard that, um, the, the reference to, to zeal. And uh, you, you said the Greek word was what for zeal? Zelos. Zelos. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, I, I frequently talk about, and I talked about in my book a little bit, like the, the Greek city states. And mm-hmm. one of the reasons I believe so much in individualism is, is because of the Greek states. Um, I know that they're obviously a, there's a very big emphasis on like your duty to your, to your state. But one of the best ways that they promoted a strong state was through strong individuals. And I know that's why there's so much of an emphasis on like, for example, the Olympic games. And we see all these statues of, of athletes, because when, when people see greatness, it, it inspires them. It, it wants, it, it causes something within them to stir and awaken that once makes them want to be great as well. And when you have all these different individuals that are doing different things and following their passions and doing what speaks to them, but, but everyone is striving to be their best in, in their field, you end up with a very strong state. And, and that's, that's one of the reasons why I think I'm so against some of like the more modern collectivism that we see is that it, it really, when, when you force uniformity and when you want people to be equal in every single way. Uh, you know, obviously equality doesn't, doesn't really exist, uh, outside of like human society too much, you know, in, in nature, it's kind of about the survival of the fittest. And so I think, you know, finding the balance between those two is something we need to, to get back to in society in general, for sure. Yeah. The, the Greeks were great. Um, they were experimenters, state builders, the Greek city-states were kind of new when, at the time that we're looking at them in the classical period of Plato and Aristotle and, you know, a little bit before that in the days of Greek tragedy and Herodotus. These are really kind of new institutions. They've only been around for a couple of centuries and um, they were kind of built through trial and error. And I think somebody like Aristotle, if you read his politics, I mean, it's clear that these people think intensely about incentive structures and mm-hmm. because they have 50 other greek city states to compare themselves to and they're saying well what is it that makes the spartans so good at winning at wars what is it that makes um athens so internally stable what is it that makes syracuse so rich and they're looking at the incentive structures of you know their their councils and um and their their laws but the olympic games is just a great example of how the greeks really valued zeal and how they they structured their society around it in many ways there's another important concept that the greeks talk about a lot in their political discourse and that is ambition but the greek word for ambition our our word for ambition comes from latin means walking around like a politician walks around and shakes hands before an election Mm -hmm. um uh, ambi itio, but uh, in Greek, the word for ambition is philotimia, which is the love of honor. And so, mm. for a Greek city-state, the they want ambitious individuals. They want people who love honor, because the city-state, the the polis, Athens, Sparta, is the only institution that can give honor. And it is the main currency that the city-state trades in, like the, the, the highest thing that an individual can desire in the Greek mind is honor. And so they want to cultivate people that they can incentivize with honors, like being the general 
or being uh, or getting an honor in the, uh, in the in the arena, a crown of victory at the Olympic Games. Like that's not worth a lot of money, but it's worth a lot of honor, and that's more important. And so, um, I think we've we've sort of gotten away from an, an honor culture in a lot of ways, and and money is often the main motivation that drives people. But yeah. um, but but the so they thought a lot about incentive structures and um and and how to make people and how to make people go for those um those those prizes of excellence and the and the qualities of excellence that are just like harder to think about in financial terms and so i'd like to see us get back to that for sure yeah we we definitely have it seems collectively like as a society we've definitely traded a lot of uh a lot of ideas of just virtue in general for financial gain and it's you know it's it's driven like there's there's multiple levels of it i think in society too i mean it's driven through um you know advertisements it's dri- it's driven through like a very consumer based society social media where it's like your your honor quote unquote is like posting the ferrari on your instagram page or you know that that's like the modern equivalent i guess to you know being a great general or something is like everyone's like oh look at that look at that mclaren look at that ferrari i guess um would would be nice to see a little bit more emphasis on uh someone's virtue and character as opposed to yeah. uh, just physical assets i think honor would like real honor if people experienced it it would feel a lot better actually like yeah. they would it would be a lot more satisfying if say you're in a city of 10,000 people and for one day, everybody in that 10,000 is like looking at you and clapping for you. And then you're going to see them for the rest of your life on a regular basis because you're living in a small city. You're not, they're not just kind of 10,000 random people on the internet. Um, I, think, I think we crave that, actually. And uh, it's, not, it's not that easy to find these days, or I think people would be, people would be chasing it more. Yeah, very true. So I know, um, you know, we, we talked a little bit about, we're going to, we're going to take a little bit of a different turn than, um, what the listeners may be used to. I know that part of what you do on your podcast or, you know, the biggest part of what you do is you, you profile great people. And so, um, you know, I know you had the the idea to profile someone a little bit on this show, and I think it's a, a great idea. I think that the listeners will be able to pull some lessons out of it. So, um, I know that you wanted to talk about the Roman general Sola. So. Uh, why don't you, you know, just give me a little bit of a, I guess, like a, a brief intro for anybody that's not familiar with him. Yeah. So Sulla is one of the figures that I've recently done on the cost of glory. And uh, I think he's an interesting figure. He's kind of been in the news a little bit lately because Elon Musk has been, uh, he's, he's made a few tweets in reference to Sulla. Um, and I'll explain that in a little. So the basic idea that Sulla in a nutshell He's um, living in the generation before Julius Caesar, before um, the, the breakdown of... So Rome transitioned from being a collective government, a republic, into being a monarchy, an empire. And Sulla is part of that story of the kind of breakdown. But he, um, he's a very talented, aspiring politician. And he gets into a conflict with a rival. The rival's name is Gaius Marius, and they're they basically to not go into too many details. They they have a falling out over which Roman should lead an army against 
King Mithridates, this rebel king in the, in Asia. And uh, I think it's kind of that's a as a side note, like Romans that they realize the greatest thing you can fight over is who gets the honor of being a general yeah. and, and of winning of leading a war. That's like the highest honor you can possibly get. So um, Sulla is awarded the command by the Senate, but then Marius uses some legal chicanery to kind of steal the command from Sulla. And Sulla responds by uh, leading his army, marching on Rome and capturing the city and um, driving Marius out. This is just completely unprecedented in Roman politics to, um, to use an army to force your will like that. Sulla goes back east to fight the war after he's settled things at Rome, but then his enemies capture the city back in another like bloody siege. And so Sulla fights a war against this extremely powerful foreign enemy for three years with no support, no funding, uh, hostile government back at Rome. But he's just off in the east with his army, uh, which is just amazing. This amazing story of an incredibly talented general. <clears throat> he, he he wins the war not he doesn't completely eliminate the enemy but he, he settles the war enough to come back and uh and fix things at rome which is to say uh take back the city and get and he wreaks revenge upon his enemies who killed a lot of his friends in the meantime and basically when he comes back to italy they fight the the first great roman civil war which was probably the bloodiest roman civil war is this horrible conflict, 200,000 uh, lives lost or more. No. Uh, but he reestablishes order in Rome, and he was a member of the conservative party, and, and the, um, the people, his enemies were members of the populist faction. And uh, the, so Sulla is like a kind of representative of tradition and the, the, the good order, and the other guys were kind of rabble-rousers, demagogues. And Sulla um, most famously goes on this um, political purge called the Proscriptions, where you know he has a lot of his enemies executed and their estates confiscated. And so this is one of the things that Elon joked about in his tweets about Sulla. He said, maybe we need a, a modern-day Sulla. <laughs> and, you know, Twitter went crazy, and people were just freaking out, like, Elon. Anyway, we don't need yeah. to get into that, but... But, you know, you can see how these political tensions, Sulla is like an interesting figure for people. But, but I think, um, and that's kind of the end of the story. He, he, um, he establishes um, a new, uh, he reestablishes the constitution to try to prevent abuses that led to the populace being able to take over. And, um, and then he dies shortly thereafter. And, um, and he leaves a very complicated legacy on Roman politics. But mm -hmm. I think that the, um, Plutarch, his biographer, is very interested in Sulla. Um, he's a man, he's a very complicated man. Tremendous virtues, tremendous vices. Um, he had uh, uh, an incredible ability to read people and to win their favor. He was extremely popular with his troops. He was um, uh, very charismatic, but also when he finally took over, took, you know, reestablished order. And, and, you know, he, he said that he was bringing justice after the abuses of the Civil War and um, tyrants taking over the city. He presented himself as a, a figure of justice. 
But when he uh, got into power, he, he kind of took the whole retribution thing to arguably to excess. And, um, and it caused a lot of damage in Roman politics thereafter. So I think he's a fascinating figure to talk about because every, every great man has vices. And you have to deal with that fact. Every great leader has something that you, you would probably not want to emulate. And, um, and this is the difference between somebody like Plutarch writing biographies and, you know, somebody writing the life of a saint. You know, Plutarch is not interested in saints' lives. He's interested in great men who do great things and also make great mistakes sometimes because mm-hmm. you probably will too if you don't, if you don't pay attention. Right. Um, and that's, I think, the, the cool thing about reading a biography of a complex man like Stala. But we can get into some more details maybe as the conversation goes on. Yeah, <clears throat> um, that's definitely something when I, I did a little bit of research about him, just so I wouldn't, because uh, I, I actually wasn't familiar with him at all, um, despite, you know, knowing a, a decent amount about, uh, you know, Roman history. And w- one of the things that stood out in my research was that there definitely was kind of this like conflicted picture that was painted of him. And it it makes me think of a lot of other times in history where it's like, the the victor kind of writes the history. And so there's this like interesting, I guess, like shift in perspective that happens, right? So if, if you were a populist politician, uh, Sola would have been awful, right? He he comes in, he purges everyone out. But if you were on Sola's side, if you were on his way of thinking, you may have been cheering this, like this, this tyrant, right? This kind of dictator that came in and took powers that weren't really, uh, given to him through <laughs> traditional means. Uh, and, and it's very interesting, right? It, like I think of sometimes about even like the World War II era where we read about Hitler and how terrible he was. And obviously he committed huge atrocities, but they were like this close to winning World War II. I mean, it, like they were like this close to like world domination. And if Hitler had won, we would be reading history books about our great leader, right? About right. like how he he came in in this like little tiny spot in Europe, conquered the entire world and he liberated everyone of like the the Jewish scum and like it just it, it's really interesting, right? How there's like this shift of perspective that can happen depending on which side of the fence that you sit on. So I mean, in your reading, I like we're I guess, like, what do you think of some of the the criticism of Sola, where even though he was kind of like trying to defend the Republic, he was using these like dictatorial means to to do so? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question. Interesting example. Yeah. On Sola's tombstone, it said, here lies Sola, whom no friend ever surpassed in doing kindness, nor any enemy in doing mischief. <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh, that was what he wanted written on his tombstone. But yeah, it's, it's, um, I think Sulla is a good example of how when you, so when he wins, at the end of the day, like all of his enemies are just dead or they're in exile. And, and so he really is in this position where he's, his guys are going to control the narrative for a while. And they do for a while. Like there's, tw- 10 or 20 years where don't say anything bad about Sulla. That's a bad idea. His, his soldiers are all over Italy. They're 
living in the properties that were confiscated from executed men. There's a lot of reasons to not say anything bad about Sulla. Um, but once those people all die, then other people can kind of start to tell the story in a different way. And so in the, um, in the immediate aftermath of, of his victory, all of the histories and all of the kind of news articles, if you will, were praising Sulla. And then the next generation, everybody kind of admitted that he went too far and we don't, we don't actually want to have anybody do that anymore. And, and Sulla was a, and, and Julius Caesar took a lesson from Sulla that mm -hmm. executing your enemies is no way to found a lasting regime or a lasting kind of constitutional order. And so Julius Caesar was famous for his clemency, for his, um, you know, mercy that he showed to his enemies, uh, maybe even to a fault, actually, because they ended up, people that he spared ended up murdering him. But so, and kind of the pendulum swings back and forth. But I think um, the Roman politics is so interesting and the figures in this period are so interesting because they are really dealing at these times with these great polarizations and they're all trying to control the narrative and there's there's just different stories that you can tell about what's going on but i think yeah one of the lessons is for sure moderation um and one of the reasons mm -hmm. that sulla was not very moderate once he won is i think he was kind of old and tired and he he felt like he had worked his ass off for his whole life and he just wanted to relax a little bit and because he was not so vigilant maybe about uh, restraining himself. A lot of his, a lot of the people that were in his entourage took advantage of the situation. They wrote all these extra names on the proscription lists for people to get executed. And because, you know, his underlings wanted to, you know, somebody's mansion. And so they say, Hey, so I think this guy said some bad things. Or he, I think he killed somebody in the yeah. civil war. And so like, yeah, sure. I'll sign it off. And, um, and so I think, you know, there is, um, there's a real, there's a real lesson to be learned there about the dangers of victory there too. So, I mean, one of the things that we're seeing today is people just don't know how to be moderate in victory in the political sphere. You got to take mm -hmm. everything you can if you win the election uh, because you might lose it on the next round and it ends up kind of spiraling out of control. And hopefully, hopefully we can get things under control wherever, yeah. whatever country you happen to live in. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. I, I like the idea of, um, moderation and i think a lot about you know like aristotle's you know go golden mean or golden middle the the idea that like a lot of times the the virtue that we actually seek is is in between two extremes and it's finding that balance it makes me think of machiavelli too um a lot on his you know treatise on politics and the prince and it, a, a reoccurring theme right is this this kind of line between being loved and being feared where, mm -hmm. you know, if, if you're going to exact revenge, you need to do it like brutally swiftly and just make it happen. Um, but, you know, at other times you need to, and obviously Machiavelli is a little bit openly manipulative when he'll say like doing things to make the people love you, you know, but that, I mean, unfortunately that, that is politics, right? It's, it's a manipulation of, of, the, the public in that sense where you're trying to keep the, the majority behind you so that uh, it doesn't spiral out of control and you don't get taken out of power. And I, I definitely, definitely 
see the correlation between today's age uh, in that sense and like our current political spectrum, like the the polarization has gotten absolutely insane. And it it very much is. It's like, all right, you know, red takes office and like we got to go in and just do everything that we can to just take control. And like th there is no communication or, or cooperation between the two sides. Um, and I definitely have seen that, right? It's like, if, if you're on the left side of the political spectrum currently, it's like most people are completely in favor of just like, yeah. I, I mean, if you ask them like, Hey, let, let's just take all these like Republican people and put them in jail. They'd be like, yeah, they're, they're crooks and criminals anyway. Like just get rid of them. And look, I, I don't know where you fall on the spectrum. Like, for me, seeing what's happening to Trump right now, like definitely makes me think yeah. about it. It's like it, the <laughs> the system is doing everything that they possibly can to just throw this man in jail. And like maybe maybe he's guilty. I don't know. Like I'm I'm a believer in innocent until proven guilty. Right. But uh, so like over and over and over, this guy's getting drugged through court just to get him out of like the running. And likewise, on the right, I think a lot of people are just at the point where they're like, yeah, you know, just take all those like commie scum and like throw them into the gulag somewhere. And it's 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 really interesting, you know, just to see how 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 divisive, I, I guess, politics have have become B based on, I guess, you know, Rome is an interesting time in that period because you you have that pendulum swinging frequently. Right. I mean, you have like. And there's this rallying cry a lot of times, especially in that period of Rome, where it's like people are calling for the return to the Republic, but they're using like dictatorial control to try to bring back this Roman Republic. Uh, do you think that there's any lessons yeah. specifically from that period or from, uh, you know, Sola's life that we can we can pull from modern politics? Gosh, well, you know, there is um, there is an interesting kind of phenomenon where it's it's polarized in roman politics from the populars to the uh conservatives and then i don't know it's slowly the 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 polls start to matter less and less and it starts to be which politician is calling the shots and i'm not sure that we'll go in this direction but um there i think you you start to see increasing cynicism uh, on both sides of the spectrum, and and maybe we're seeing some of that these days, where it's easy for people to make deals across the aisle, uh, just not to favor their constituency, but to favor their own interests. Um, so I think, uh, well, I, I my my takeaway is we're spinning in a in an increasingly dangerous cycle, and like we need to yeah. build our own friendship networks and make sure that we're resilient for um times of chaos so that we don't have to rely on our own party our own interests getting in charge that we're not putting our faith in that put not your trust in mm. princes and sons of men in whom there's no salvation i mean um so like how can you put yourself in a position to rebuild if things get dangerous and also just locally um, connect with people that are in your community. And I think that that's, that's the best antidote that I've found to kind of internet ideology polarization, um, the kind of political polarization that we're trying to get drawn into. Um, I'm not saying that there's not a right and a wrong, but 
uh, you know, at the end of the day, like get to know the people that, that are around you. I mean, we have um, kids in a local school and uh, it's a private school. And, you know, we're like making, uh, making connections with the parents there. Schools are a great way to get in touch with local people. Um, I mean, I didn't think about talking this, but this is really what I'm doing um, in, uh, in trying to kind of, I don't know, build the most resilient life you can uh, when you're not sure what's going to happen next. Um, yeah. and, I, and that's another thing that I think that you can take a lot of like individual lessons from uh, the great leaders of the past um, on how to, how, to, how to rise up in your own organization and how to build a, a constituency of people and like uh, win people's trust. Sala was really good at um, as a low ranking officer, you can see these elements that were promises of his greatness. Like when he was on campaign in, in Africa with his general um, Marius. So he's like a junior officer and he's actually serving the man that he's eventually going to fight the civil war against but they're they're in the same army and he's a subordinate officer and he does everything he can to to make his general to make his general's life easier he actually becomes marius's um like right hand man and his most trusted officer because he just works his ass off and he um he 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 wins the favor of all of the junior officer corps and the soldiers love him because they see him out working in the, in the trenches with them and so i think like that's something that that everybody should be doing is like trying to build favor to do favors for people, for people. and um so sallust his one of his uh, historians that talks about sulla says sulla took steps to ensure that that he owed nobody anything and everybody else owed him as much as possible so Mm -hmm. so there's i mean it's not just about being servant-hearted if you want to emulate sulla it's about um it's about building a um a kind of uh a network of people that look to you as somebody who can help them. And I think that that's, that's a, th- a lesson that I've taken a lot from, from kind of, you know, Sulla on how to build friendships locally. If you're in a new place, for example, mm-hmm. in a new situation. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot you could talk about there. For sure. In, that, that brings up one of my questions I wanted to ask you about too, where, you know, obviously like, there's something inspiring about like great generals or great leaders, right? Because you, you kind of see how they manage large groups of people and it, 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 they, they act strategically so that their desired outcome comes to pass, right? There, there's something very powerful about someone that can take, you know, a hundred thousand people and direct them in a way that, that leads to a victory in a battle. And there, there's so much in war specifically that that is strategic right it's kind of like human chess right i mean you're directing where these people are going and you're trying to reinforce weaknesses you're trying to enact elements of surprise and ultimately to to get a victory and i i think about the way that we live life right and in a lot of ways that's kind of what 
wisdom is, is you're, you're trying to chart your best course of living, right? I mean, you're, you're trying to look at potential outcomes and make the most strategic decision that won't just necessarily lead to easiness or won't just lead to, um, you know, comfort or, but, but to actually make the decision that's going to lead to the, the best possible outcome for you. So, I mean, what do you think it is about uh, military leaders and specifically, I guess, um, Sola that, that makes them able to get in there and lead and inspire? I mean, do you think it's just specifically, I know you mentioned like his ability to uh, win the favor of people around him and inspire, but you know, do you think there's more to it as well? Well, one of the main things about being an ancient general and probably about being a modern general too, I, I wouldn't really know, 90% of what you're doing, even in an active war, is logistics. And it's, it's planning. It's putting your army in, a, in the right position. And um, so putting yourself in a really strong position so that the enemy doesn't dare attack you or trying to trick them into attacking you and they think you're in a weak position but you're actually in a strong position so so much of it is is this kind of chess of uh, uh of thinking several steps ahead and and um and making sure that you have food and um so so i think that that that's a, there's a kind of intensive planning that that has to go into a good general's work um but I think that's that's a hard thing to pick up from a biography. You know, how do I become an intensive mm -hmm. planner like that? Uh, I think you have to do it to get better at it um, and to get experience. But they also, um, any great general has to inspire his men, has to inspire his troops. And a lot of that is storytelling. Mm. So Sulla is, um, there's this moment where he, has to convince his troops they've they're in campania in southern italy it's before he's marched against mithridates before any of the falling out with marius he gets word from his um from from a uh, legate like ambassadors from rome come and they say sulla you've just been stripped of the command marius is going to lead the army to Mithridates. And so Sulla, at this point, it's never been done in Roman history that a Roman army would march on Rome in a hostile manner. And he has to convince his troops uh, to march with him, 20,000 men, to, um, to not abandon him if he wants to do what he wants to do. And so he, like, how do you do that? And what he does is he, he makes a speech and he, he eventually gets them to, to suggest the idea to him and he's like no no you can't mean that and they're like yes march on rome sulla so like he's a genius <laughs> yeah. at persuasion and you know so how do you get people to, to make to seem for it to seem to them like it's, it's their own idea in the right situation um that's a that's something that you can study and i think use in a lot of contexts there the general's communication skills and and um you know he he would have done that through storytelling he was he was a great um a lover of the theater actually Sulla was in his youth one of the um things that he spent a lot of time doing because he was kind of poor for an aristocrat he's for a nobleman he's like his family's fallen on hard times um in his youth his dad was kind of not that like, successful in politics and 
so he he doesn't inherit much but he, he um so he doesn't have enough money to like have political ambition to like go for a political career so what he does is he just hangs out with actors and frequents the theater and he, he actually wrote plays which is kind of amazing so i think that you see this too a lot in a lot of great future leaders is they're they're really attentive to storytelling and writing and and the the, the art of words and napoleon wrote these mm -hmm. like bad novels and alexander hamilton wrote all this poetry and like they're not doing it because they want to be poets. Saul is not doing this necessarily because he wants to be a, uh, a comic writer for the theater. You know, they're learning the art of how do you get people to laugh? Because that's an incredibly important skill in politics. You know, Obviously, somebody like Donald Trump knows the value of getting people to laugh when you want yeah. them to laugh. Getting them to laugh at the right person at the right time, like your enemies. Um, so they're, they're like working on you know, their their ability to move hearts with words so you see that i think that's a fascinating part of sulla's story that doesn't get told enough is like he he hung out with professional storytellers so um i forgot where, where i was going what the question was <laughs> even but <laughs> yeah no it's, it's I, all I get, great I get going on these guys yeah i i really like that emphasis too on i guess invoking emotion right because that that's it's yes, so the general's art so much of it is evoking emotion but go on go on yeah i mean yeah. it's well and it's you need it for like everything um you know i i do sales in my day job or you know i do sales training you know we talked about you know i, I like manage have a little bit of ownership in some gyms here in atlanta and uh I, I tell everybody, like anybody that I, that I meet, that's like younger, I'm like, listen, like learn as much as I love philosophy. Right. Um, I'm like, learn, learn sales. Because mm -hmm. if, if you learn sales and so much of sales is philosophy, it, it really is really intertwined. Um, especially like rhetoric. I mean, if, if you can sell, it's like, you can do anything. And sometimes in sales, like, you know, having someone tell you what they need, like your, your story with, uh, you know, Sola kind of getting, getting his legion to, to suggest marching on Rome. Sometimes that's like the, the best way, like when you can, when you're trying to sell someone personal training, right. The best thing that you can possibly do is make them realize how much they need it to the point that they're like asking you for it, you know, right. like, and, and some of the times the best way to do that is just to ask questions. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, when I have somebody come in, you're like, Oh, you know, so like, what, what's your plan for working out? Uh, I don't know. You know, I'm just gonna come in. I'm like, Oh really? So you're, you know, planning to get this membership and you're going to come in. Like, you don't, you don't have a plan. You don't know what you're doing. Like the, the more you start to probe with those things, it's like people suggest for themselves, like, man, you know, maybe do you guys have like someone that would assist us or like, you know, would, would show me what to do? Oh yeah, exactly. Like, I'm, I'm glad you asked. Cause yeah, we have somebody yeah. for you. Um, and it's, I don't know, like subtle, subtle manipulation, right? <laughs> I guess. But, yeah. Uh, that, that's a very, very important thing. I mean, cause everything you do, I mean, whether you're at a job interview, um, whether you're trying to pitch a business, whether you're, uh, you know, a teacher, you know, and you're trying to, you're trying to teach kids about something like you, you have to understand what invokes emotion from people and being able to, you know, tap into that, that, that is what makes you effective in 
basically everything yeah. you do. I mean, I, I don't know that it's it's really possible to be successful at a high level without without having that trait or without developing that trait. Well, the ancients would certainly think not. And actually, to bring it back to Sulla, so the um, the Arist so the first treatise on psychology is that we have in the western tradition is aristotle's rhetoric actually mm -hmm. he wrote a book on the soul but really when he talks about the human psyche he has this whole book of, of um his treatise on how to persuade people on public speaking where he talks about the various emotions and he talks about zeal in there he talks about envy and anger and um and it's you know he's a philosopher doing practical psychology for the, the purpose of winning people's hearts and minds. And actually, Sulla, according to Plutarch, is the man responsible for the fact that we have the texts of Aristotle. Funny enough, when he was in Athens, mm. he, he, um, yeah, Athens was rebellious against Rome, and he, right. he had to siege and capture the city. And there was a, he, he found this library of Aristotle's works in Athens, and they were all worm-eaten, and they were neglected. And so he, he, he confiscated them and he took them back to Rome and they, the books of Aristotle were then put into proper editions and disseminated because, you know, the rhetoric and the physics and the metaphysics and poetics, all that stuff was, was not really known. These were his lecture notes and his texts had, had been lost. So it was, uh, you know, we kind of owe that knowledge to Sulla, arguably, which I think is Interesting. fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it, uh, it it makes me think a bit of the the Renaissance too, because that was a huge part of the Renaissance, where you know these Renaissance humanists going out into old monasteries that had these like caches of books, and uh, they 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 go out and they they dig through them and they find these like tattered pages, like you said, worm eaten, and then they're like so upset because there are these treasures that are in these like states of decay. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, that, that's been a huge, hugely important thing, right? Like imagine if, if Sola had not preserved them, we, we would have lost all of these works that, you know, are so widely read and appreciated today. Yeah, it's just an incalculable sort of crisis point for history there. Do these books get saved or not? And think of the yeah. impact they had. It's just incredible. For sure. Yeah. What do you think, like specifically with Sola? Um, I know we we've learned a lot about him. We've we talked a lot about him. I mean, if there was like one lesson, one one major lesson that you had to pick out from his life um, that someone could take and like apply to their life. I mean, have we already covered it, or do you think there? Here's here's what I would say, and we haven't talked talked about this at all. One of the really interesting things about Sola that I find so compelling about him is. <laughs> Oddly enough, he was actually a man of great faith in a way. And he, um, and you could, you could take that cynically, but I think it was genuine. So he, he had this great belief in the gods and their favor toward him in particular. And um, <clears throat> so he would, whenever he had the opportunity, a success in a, in a battle or in the political sphere, he would always attribute it to fortune, to the gods, basically, to, to, to forces outside of his control. And he used to say that the decisions that he made kind of 
on the spur of the moment without thinking about it too much. Maybe we could read on intuition. It turned out better than the ones that he stressed and planned over. And, uh, <clears throat> and he, he, just, he just believed that he had this great luck. And, you know, a lot of times you think if you, if you praise the gods or, or luck instead of giving the credit to yourself, then, you know, um, it's not your victory, it's the gods' victory. And, but that's precisely the point. And one of the things that this did for Sulla, besides, I think, the, the, the fact that that kind of makes you just like a more positive person who's able to roll with the punches and trust your intuitions better is it also if you are successful plutarch notes this in another treatise this really deflects envy and envy is um kind of the the, the opposite of zeal it's when you when you see somebody successful and instead of wanting that success you want to deprive them of that success mm. and so what um this is a way to deflect envy to to say that thank god i i got lucky i'm so grateful and um it, it's fortune it wasn't me and i think that this was one of the way the ways that Sulla was able to build um a, a constituency in the conservative party that he was he was extremely well liked among his friends and he was very successful but he also didn't have all of these like invidious challengers in the same way that a lot of politicians do. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that he was able to give credit to other people and to the gods. It kind of, it's a, it's a habit that you can cultivate in yourself to give thanks to the higher power, whatever you believe in. And, um, uh, and just not, not think that everything that you get is yours because it's ultimately not even your successes. You have to, you have to yeah. leave behind you when you go to the grave. Right. So, um, I think that's a one of the things that I find the most inspiring about Sulla. Yeah, that that's a really powerful lesson, and it's it, it makes me think too. Um, I, I've frequently reflected on that, it, at least in our modern age, right? It's like people are very quick to claim successes and very quick to blame failures on external events, which is exactly the mm -hmm. opposite of what you're saying about Sola. And it, it's very damaging, right? Because it's like when, when things go right and you, you know, quote unquote, get lucky, people are like, Oh, I, you know, I, I did so much to get this. I worked hard, you know, and it, it does inspire when, when someone is like pumping themselves up and singing their own praises, people generally don't, uh, feel very inspired to celebrate that person, right? Versus the person that kind of has a humility, whether whether it's feigned humility or genuine humility, um, you know, it still tends to make people maybe appreciate that person a little bit more. And something that you see a lot, right, is that everybody in our modern age, for the most part, like when they when they fail or when something bad happens to them, they just they blame it on everything else. Like it's it's this person's fault or it's the economy's fault or whatever. And it, it basically like you, you take away your sense of responsibility to change the event or make it any better. Um, you know, I think it's, it's so important to, to own our failures. Right. I mean, it's like, yeah. you don't need to own the successes, right? I mean, like a, a success is just a notch on the belt. It's something that you have and it, you know, doesn't really get taken away, but I think it, I think it's a really, really good point, right? That we should emphasize more 
um, our failures and take ownership of those and to sort of just, you know, say, Hey, I'm, I'm glad that this good thing happened. I got lucky, you know, my, maybe I put some hard work in and I got lucky and it paid off. Right. And then when, when something doesn't go our way to say, all right, like this important for me to take control and ownership of this. Yeah. Yeah. Extreme ownership, right. Of yeah. Failures. Jocko. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it, and it, it, it lets you, it helps you learn from your mistakes because you're otherwise not going to, because they weren't your mistakes. So what is there to learn? And, sure. um, and, uh, yeah, but, but giving credit to the gods or to, to God, to, um, to others, to, to the, to the team that helped you for one thing, uh, mm -hmm. for your victories. So important. And, um, yeah, actually, the, the, the topic of self-praise is um, such an interesting topic. Plutarch wrote a whole treatise on that. And on the cost of glory, I, I do take some, some lessons from that in a, a couple of recent episodes I did. But um, yeah, this is the thing that we just not, we don't have a great culture of this in uh, today of like, what do you do with success? How do you make sure that you are able to build upon that and, and keep people well disposed towards you when you do win and that's very hard to do actually and it, it goes against a lot of our inclinations like you said we're inclined to take the credit for victories and and fob off the blame for our defeats um, yeah so yeah do the opposite for sure yeah definitely a great 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 lesson um so just kind of wrapping up here i have some questions i like to ask all my guests um the the first one is do, do you personally what are your daily habits like what what daily habits do you have? Well, it's hard to have daily habits when you have a one year old that yeah. wakes up erratically. But um, I what I I get up in the morning and I um, as soon as I can I have a meditation prayer session that I do for ten or fifteen minutes and then I've been I used to always get up and read uh, an ancient text in Greek. And I, for a while I was reading Homer, partly to practice my language skills for a while I was reading Plato, but I, you know, it kind of became a spiritual discipline. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to do this with the, the New Testament these days. And uh, so some, just read something like rich and maybe take some, some notes on it. Um, 10 or 15 minutes doesn't take that much that really kind of orients me toward my day i try to work out as much as i can but that's more of a weekly habit go to the gym four times a week um and uh, okay another cool habit that i've picked up lately is i i i like to journal but um often when you journal you're kind of doing the stoic thing of what did i do good today what did i do bad today or you're talking about um kind of exhortations to yourself i think i get that i do that a lot and um i talk about ideas in my journal but what i've been trying to do lately is as uh, a friend of mine benjamin carlson on on twitter who suggested you should try to record a, an experience that you had try to like write down something that stood out to you that day because when you go back at your journals i don't know if you've had this experience to journal but it's like your exhortations to yourself are kind of for the day. And I don't know, you're, it's not that interesting to go back and look at those. It's not, you know, you, you often find that you're just struggling with the same stuff 10 years later, five years later. But yeah. if you remember something that you experienced that day, like something that your wife said to you or, um, you know, uh, 
something sad or something happy happened. It's just um, it just makes it worth coming back to much later. So that's those are a couple of habits that I have. Yeah, I've never um, I've never really gotten into to journaling. I mean, I I do uh, I do a lot of prayer, and I I try to through prayer I try to remind myself of things to kind of be grateful for things that we we generally um would take for granted right like the the most important things that our life in our lives that are just there so we we don't really think of them i try to place an emphasis on that but i've never like i said i've never really gotten into journaling too much i definitely see the i can see the potential there maybe maybe i can uh start dabbling into it a little bit yeah i recommend it i like it, it kind of clarifies my thoughts for sure sure what about um obviously I know you've you've read quite a bit um through you know e your your personal interests and also through um your journey through academia as well and philosophy and uh classicism. What are your top two book recommendations if you had to pick two out of the multitude? Yeah. Well, depending on what you want, I <clears throat> One of the books that I recommend a lot, I think everybody should read, every young man especially, but everybody should read Homer's Iliad. Yeah. Um, it's harder to, to get into, I think, for modern people than the Odyssey, but um, but the Iliad is kind of a big lift, so I'm going to cheat and um, say what what I would recommend if you have trouble getting into Homer is start with it an older epic that's shorter that and that's the epic of gilgamesh which mm. you could read in just a day if you if you took the time but it's it's a lot it's a lot shorter and i really recommend the stephen mitchell translation for the epic of gilgamesh to get you into the kind of heroic world and the, the kind of ancient mindset and think about the difference between nature and culture when you're reading it um i i love that that epic um so i'll so that can be my my number one that's how i'm going to cheat number two i think that you should read Plutarch's Lives. Um, pick up the biography of Alexander. There's a great Penguin edition, Age of Alexander. Or you could pick up the biography of Caesar, um, you know, Fall of Rome, kinds of Plutarch's Lives collections. Usually they're, they're, there's like 48, 50 of them, but uh, Penguin and Oxford, you know, they'll, they'll collect a number of lives in a certain period. And so you'll get the biographies of several of these men um, around this time. But I think those those are texts that Napoleon and Hamilton and great kings have read. Um, so if you yeah. want to read an ancient text that's been really impactful and that you can really get through in a, a week or so, they're not that long. Those are some ones I would recommend. Yeah, those are, those are great recommendations. And I, I know you mentioned... Um... Like you know, re reading through the New Testament, so like I've I've read the New Testament, you know, multiple times, but I never like I never could get into the Old Testament. I was like, I just kind of felt like it was like, what's yeah. the point? Like, why even have it here, right? And uh, I I saw a clip of Jordan Peterson talking with uh, Bill Maher actually, and he was discussing like the relevance of the Old Testament, and he. I'm I'm really really abbreviating, so like I'm probably not totally totally staying true to his message, but like his general message was kind of like, look, you know, if if you're reading the Old Testament as like this, 
this very like rigid historical document. He's like, you're, you're going to be kind of disappointed, but you know, why, why shouldn't you read the old Testament sort of the same way you would read um, like the Iliad? Yeah. And it, it really changed my perspective where like when I stopped trying to focus on like all of these little details that may or may not be historically accurate, which like a lot of the things that are in there have been proven over time to be historically accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, but like when you're not trying to like go through it with a fine tooth comb and like pick apart the ethics of like, Oh, well, you know, I don't think this is right for today's age and whatever. When you, when you actually just look at it as like this inspiring story and you try to pull lessons from like each individual event, I think that it, it becomes a lot more powerful because just like in Homer and the Iliad, and some of these these like great ancient texts, it's like part of the reason that they're so powerful is because they don't like depict human beings as being these perfect people. They highlight, you know, both their victories and their downfalls. And, you know, when I think that that's a lot of like when the Old Testament, when you read about slavery and things, it's easy to think like, how could you believe in something that promotes slavery? And it's like, I don't think it's really promoting slavery. It's just saying that this is how it was at this time. And it, it is, it's painting you a picture of how it was, you know, the reality. And, um, you know, you, you can't cut out shortcomings. I mean, you, you can't make any human being perfect. So I think that, you know, again, like focusing on biographies or these like great, uh, these great ancient stories, I think they're really powerful at that, uh, highlighting, you know, the, the ups and the downs. Yeah, the Old Testament's a story of a stiff-necked, sinful people. And, uh, but it's an amazing story. And one of the best things I did in college was to not do my homework, but to just stay up late reading through the Old Testament, just from Genesis all the way through. And I think if you just read it as a story and get into the characters and I mean, you get into like first and second Samuel and you'll just be crying. I mean, it's, yeah. it's powerful. Um, I even read through all the laws, but just, I, I think if you get through a board to a boring part, read it out loud. Just stand up, walk around, read it out loud, just get through it. Don't try to, you know, take a profound lesson from it necessarily. But, you know, it's, there's some value in just kind of articulating these things. So you've at least heard them once. For but, sure. Um, yeah. What about, um, and I'm assuming you, you probably, I don't know, depending on how you uh, look at the value of the word hero, um, do, do you have any like personal heroes or people that you really look up to that you've read about? or in life in general? Yeah, one of mine is uh, the philosopher Plato, actually. A lot of people really like Socrates, but I I studied the biography of the philosopher Plato a lot, Mm -hmm. and he's kind of an inspiration for what I'm doing now. Um, I I think Plato uh, is really inspiring to me personally as a writer, as somebody who could um, move people and shape their lives for the better through storytelling. I mean, the, the Plato's dialogues are, many things but they're definitely stories and he told stories within them and there's yeah. they're about encounters between people but plato was also a man of action i mean he um you know he founded a school which is very hard to do he um he went to sicily several times and was involved in some kind of very interesting hijinks statecraft and uh, he you know his students went on to topple tyrants and found constitutions i mean he was a very like he was a man of the world and not just an idea guy. And I, he, you can read the Plutarch's life of Dion, D I O N kind of tells the story of Plato 
um, as a as an actor in the political sphere, which is fascinating. So, yeah, that's as for like an intellectual trying to build a a school or a um, a community. Uh, I found Plato to be actually really inspiring. Um, so that's the one I would pick. Awesome for now. Yeah. Yeah. And the, so the last question I always ask my guests, um, maybe, maybe it's a bit of a stumper. Maybe it's not. If you could hop into a time machine, go back to a younger version of yourself. I, I usually presume somewhere in the teenage years, because I feel like that's a time when we're searching. A lot of times we're soul searching. We're trying to form our ideas about the world and ourselves you could go back and give yourself like one piece of advice what what might it be all right so it's one piece of advice and i probably wouldn't tell myself to invest early but i, I would have <laughs> told myself that probably if i could give myself two but the one piece of yeah. advice i would give i think is to read biographies i didn't know that i would be this interested in them and i i, I wish i had started earlier reading the lives of great figures and great leaders because it ends up being a library that you can keep in your head of examples and experience um and whether it's short biographies or long form ones um i I just think that that's something that every young man should start doing you know when he's in middle school at least by high school and uh, if you haven't started yet start but um that i would have ended up I would have been a lot further along the road to virtue, I think, um, than I am now if I had started earlier. Sure. Yeah, and I definitely, I mean, I think that's part of the reason why, like, for example, the meditations is so popular with so many people, right? Because you, like a biography kind of paints a picture of who someone is and you get to see their actions and um, you get to get inside of their head a little bit. And obviously, like meditations is unique because you're, you're you're literally literally reading someone's journal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, their their inner thoughts, and being able to put yourself into the mind of and, and this is an idea that has been talked about many times, right? Like I think, I believe Napoleon Hill references it in Thinking Grow Rich, where he has this like council of the people that he looks up to, and he like closes his eyes and goes up, and he's at like the round table with you know these six great minds, and you're like wait like. Sola, what would you do? You know, like Julius Caesar, yeah. what would you do? Seneca, what would you do? Um, to, to be able to tap into that wellspring of, of knowledge and experience, whether or not we can truly predict what they would do, if we can kind of put ourselves into that, that form of thinking, that's a very powerful thing. Yeah. And I think you can access founts of wisdom in yourself that you didn't know were there when you start to think of it of like, what would X do? Yeah. Um, because your brain can use it, our our like our ability to tell and and record stories and derive lessons and and actionable like advice for ourselves from the experiences and the stories that we've had is really really powerful and so much of it we just leave it untapped but that's a way to do it to like you know visualize these people that have had an impact on you in various ways and uh and because there is so much wisdom that you have stored in deep inside of you. And um, that's one of the ways that you put it there by hearing stories and uh, kind of studying the lives of great men, but also um, by calling them up through your imagination and finding ways to actually put that into action. Um, yeah, that's the kind of 
the mastermind circle of Napoleon Hill. Yeah. Like to call it. Yeah. That's, that's a great tactic. For sure. And, um, I, you know, I've really enjoyed speaking with you today. If, if any of the listeners would like to look you up or learn more about like the cost of glory podcast, um, how should someone reach out to you or how can someone find you? Uh, I'm on all podcast platforms. I'm also on YouTube. Um, I'm at cost of glory on Twitter. Uh, Twitter is a good way to reach out. Ancientlifecoach.com is my website. Um, and uh, I think that there's a link to my email address on there. So yeah, have a listen, reach out, study the lives of the great, the great ancients and the great moderns. And uh, I hope to see you there. Awesome. Well, Alex, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Um, really appreciate your time and I hope you have a uh, wonderful rest of your day. Thanks for taking the time, Shane. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Renaissance Wisdom Podcast, and hopefully you learned at least one lesson on today's episode. Our mission here is to uncover practical wisdom to create a better way of living for our audience. If you enjoyed this episode, please help us by leaving the show a review on your podcast platform of choice and by giving it a share on social media. This really helps us to grow our audience and to continue to add more episodes. If you are interested in learning more, please check out our website at renaissance-wisdom.com or check out the book that started it all, Renaissance Wisdom, How to Flourish in the Modern Day, now on Amazon. Thank you again, and may wisdom be your guide.